RPG lessons learned. When the game is over, when your players are gone, that's when lessons are learned. We are at RPG LL Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, RPGLLPodcast at gmail.com, and check us out online at RPGLessonsLearned.com. This is RPG Lessons Learned, the show where you can learn from our mistakes. This is Brian Kilby. Dusty is not here, but you're going to hear a lot of Dusty in this podcast. Uh, this is uh, something that Dusty and I actually recorded back pre-pandemic in the fall of 2019, basically before the world changed. And this is something that he, Mike, and I had planned on doing for a while, which was going to our favorite used bookstore, which is McKay's, which is a chain in uh, Tennessee and North Carolina. And we were going to just scour the RPG section and talk about what we found. And this episode features that, but it also features a lot more. Uh, as Dusty and I uh, were driving uh, the hour trip there and back, we recorded quite a bit. This was recorded on my phone. Uh, the audio quality is not great. And uh, we actually cover a lot of different topics throughout this. There's a ton of self-reflection and a ton of just uh, thought sort of put we, – we muse basically in, in this episode. Uh, we muse on what it means to be a rogue and how Chris's play uh, impacts our understanding and idea of what a rogue is. Uh, we talk about the books that we found at the, uh, at, at the bookstore, things that we had wanted to get but didn't. Uh, and we actually round out the show with a long discussion about uh, why we do what we do. Why do we collect? And Dusty speaks in terms of his RPG book buying habit. And I talk quite a bit about my Transformers collecting. Now, funny enough, uh, in this, this again was pre-pandemic. And uh, in fact, Dusty and I talk about how we we didn't get a chance to play as much anymore. Uh, over the pandemic, I, we only we've only had a chance to play once. Uh, Dusty has played a few more times with Mike and uh, his buddy Martin, but uh, I've only had a chance to play one. So it's it's just interesting going back and listening now two years later and realizing, you know, even then we didn't get a chance to play like we used to. Uh, funny enough, also uh, in this, we talk about things that we were looking for that we did not find. Dusty has since found his uh, Willow book, and I also managed later on to pick up what I was looking for. And also I was talking about uh, my toy collecting, and it, it's funny I reference a certain uh, item or set of items I was searching for at this point. I only had five. I think I have like 30 of them now. I have more. I have duplicates of, of the line. So now technically it's it's uh, dated in respect to our personal inventories uh, of what we have. But the general themes and of everything that we said really still applies. And I want to do a quick PSA. Make sure that you back up everything. Back up your phone. Back up your PCs. Back up everything. Uh, I had originally thought that this content was lost. I got a new phone uh, like the week after this, which I still have that phone even though it's been two years. I'm proud to say that I have not felt the need to upgrade. But uh, back up because you'll never know what you might lose if you don't. Let's go ahead and join uh, the conversation between uh, myself and Dusty. Again, this was recorded in the car. So there's quite a bit of background noise. I've gone through and I've listened to this twice. You can absolutely make out everything we're saying, but it is not up to our normal audio quality. Enjoy.
So we were just having a nostalgic conversation about Chris and all of his days spent roguing as a roguey rogue. He rogues like no other ones in a rogue. He, he, he's, he rogues. And uh, we were talking about his propensity to roll massive numbers of D6s on like every attack roll. He basically is like a game of Yahtzee. It was. Rogue Yahtzee in, in 4th edition. And Brian, you asked if it was legit. And I shared with you that one day after he left, it, I, I decided to read the entire Rogue chapter. And it, it was, in fact, legit. Like, all the stuff he was doing. And that's what led to his play style. When Chris was doing one of two things in any given combat, he was either doing nothing, like sort of maneuvering around, and that's the end of his turn, and we'd be like, really? Like, you're ending your turn with no attack? Yeah, 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 that's it, that's it. Or, when circumstances were suddenly clear, he would run in and roll like 15d6. It was so, glorious. <laughs> and you asked if uh, if everyone plays rogue that way, and the short answer is, like, we don't know, right? Because Chris is pretty much our rogue. Our thief, our rogue, our assassin. He plays all that stuff, and we rarely play that. I think Nathan played a thief. Yeah, yeah, Nathan was a thief through the entire Pathfinder campaign. But, uh... Chris is all we have to go on. You know, going back to our sort of business ethos, this is less business and more, like, business meta, 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 uh, meta business. But, like, one thing whenever you work for a large company, you often have to do is go to training. Or you have to set in some sort of workshop. And the thing people always hate, ironically, is, like, the role play. Because... You, are, you never have any agency, really, in it. I mean, I, I guess you get to make the decision on what you say and what you do, but the situation that you're placed into, you have no say-so whatsoever. And it's never fun. We've never gone this route. Eh, I mean, you could, because at the very least, even if we have pre-gens, we get to select two. But it might be fun for a game or two where we are given a class, but we have no say-so in it. Maybe force me to play as a rogue. So we'll see what emerges. Now there's bias in that, of course, because I have seen Chris play. But it would be interesting to know, like, you know, like what my style of a rogue would be. Would it be like the Chris style, or would I try to uh, play it another way? There's a real easy way to do that. You can just roll 3d6 for your stats, top to bottom, without you getting to allocate which stat is what. Mm-hmm. And if you wind up having a high intelligence, you're probably going to be a wizard. And if you wind up having a high dex, you're probably going to be a rogue. I mean, that's the way it was from the earliest days of original D&D. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. We so should do that at some point. That's easily enough accomplished. In fact, World of Dungeons, you can do that because you roll 2d6 to get all your bonuses. And it's random where it winds up. In fact, isn't that how we did World of Dungeons to decide who was what class? I, I think you're right, actually. I don't think we allocated it. I think we went top to bottom. Well, we could certainly do more of that. I wouldn't mind. Actually, there's a new... Um, you're going to have to bleep this out, so I'll say it and you have to bleep it. There's a relatively new thing I've seen on the internet that someone put together. I, I, I'm driving, so I don't have his name in front of me. But he put together a little packet, a six-page packet called, and I quote, Here's some f***ing D&D. <laughs> And it's six pages, and it really condenses 
the races and classes and spells and monsters and everything into six pages that are D20 based. And I have really thought about running you guys through an abbreviated Ravenloft campaign using here's some f***ing D&D. That would be fun. Yep. And FYI, there's a clean version that he released that you could find called Here's Some D&D. And I think the clean version is actually better written because in the in the non-clean version, he goes to great lengths to fit the F word into like practically every sentence. Uh, and it actually makes some of the rules a little tougher to read, to understand what they do mechanically. But in Here's Some D&D, the clean version, the rules are written in a very technical writer way where... There's no crazy F-bombs, there's not a lot of flavor, it's just, it's just very clear this is the rule. So when I print that for you guys, to use it, I'll be printing the clean version. Okay. That would be great. So, also back to the Thief topic, and is that the only way to play Thief? In a lot of ways, we're lucky to have Chris. Absolutely. Because you hear the horror stories online about the thieves that pick everyone's pocket. Or the thieves that pass the GM notes because they want to steal the best loot and not have the other players know about it. Uh, there's a lot of toxic behavior that the thief um, class with the pickpocket skill created in the hobby. There's a DD used to have an official podcast years ago, and it was really good. Well, episodes of it were really good. And there's an episode where they interviewed a guy named Kim Mohan. M-O-H-A-N. He's the guy that did a lot of the editing for the earlier editions. And he talked about the toxic behavior that the pickpocket D100, you know, D% chance created. Uh, and then the, the assassinate percent chance created with inter-party conflict. And that was interesting as well. Chris isn't his thief. He's our thief. Yes, exactly. He's not out to steal from you guys. He's out to, you know, get in the perfect position to one-shot the bad guy by stabbing him, you know, in that... Uh, assassinate. Yeah, in that magic spot in the back where the guy just drops. Like, man, he, he wants to assassinate. That's what he wants to do. Oh, God, I'm thinking back to uh, what the... Was it Texas State University? Is that... Or what... Uh, wasn't he the... E- thi- ETU, East e- Texas University. East yes. Texas University. I always screw that up. Uh, but didn't he do assassinate on the professor? And he messed it up? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was such a horrible scene. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. He, he, uh, the role went badly. And, oh. Uh, but that was the one episode where he was finally going to get to play his rogue. He was finally going to rogue it up. And I think ultimately he really enjoyed what happened. But that's why you have dice. In the oh, game. that! But that was—it was messy. It was yes. messy. So messy, he had to burn down the house to hide the evidence. Yes, that was glorious. <laughs> so here we are checking in after visiting McKay's books, and geez, Brian, I got yeah. quite a haul. Yeah, you absolutely did. Um, it's. Do you have? space for that on your shelves um I do I in point of fact I do especially with having made the new shelf should we walk through some of this stuff sure absolutely so I got two of the L5R novels and these actually are with fantasy flight games so so post acquisition meaning in the last year or two I got the uh 
Whispers of Shadow and Steel about a scorpion magistrate and the Sword and the Spirits about the Phoenix Champion. So I'm curious to read some of this uh, new L5R fiction. I used to follow several L5R podcasts. Oh, wow. There's actually cards in this book. Do they go with the book or did somebody just drop them in? I don't know, but the one in the Shadows and Steel is actually a Bayushi Ujiro uh, card. Just want to point out. Doesn't have cards. Just want to point out this was a used bookstore that we were at. So uh, occasionally you might find that something is missing, that a page has been written on. Uh, something could be included that isn't supposed to be with it. Yep. All right. So that's the L5R books. Let's see. Moving on to. I actually got some third edition. Actually. Generic OGL D20. I got a couple of books for that. Let me sort them out here. Yes, here they are. There are two books in the Legends and Layers series. I got Darkness and Dread, which is a handbook of horror and dark fantasy. I've always wanted to run a horror game for you guys. Mm -hmm. I have a horror book for fourth edition called Heroes of Horror, or sorry, Heroes of Shadow. I have a horror book for uh, 3.5 official D&D by Wizards. And I think that's called Horror Adventures, but I'm not sure. We've got a Pathfinder book called Horror Adventures, and now I've got this generic D20 book, Darkness and Dread. And I'm particularly excited about the Horror Adventures in Chapter 6. But uh, quite a lot of horror content. I will eventually get around to running a horror game for you guys. What puts me off it is the challenge of maintaining the, uh, the tension in a world of cell phones and interruptions, and we typically play, you know, in the middle of the afternoon during blazing sun, that's gonna be difficult. Yeah, like the Cthulhu game that we played, uh, it was Cthulhu, right? Yes, it yeah, was. Yeah, so uh, I don't remember it being terribly uh, terrifying, but it was it was fun, it was interesting. But it, it felt more like, uh, it felt really full more, felt more like, like a detective story up until the end than, than really anything else. Yeah, there was, there, there was the dagger that floated. So we actually played The Haunting, which is the famous, you know, starting adventure for Call of Cthulhu. For many, many editions, that's been the default starting adventure. And, uh, yeah, you guys were in your cell phones. We were in a fluorescent room, fluorescently lit room. It wasn't scary at all. My other generic D20 3.5 book, by Legends and Layers is Wildscapes, a handbook for designing and surviving savage wildlands. So they had some other Legends and Layers books, but they were all like player focused. I really like the GM focused books about creating settings, about, you know, managing new monsters and all that. So, you know, actually going back to the whole uh, trying to maintain the uh, environment for a horror themed game. I wonder how many GMs out there actually enforce like a, a no digital uh, rule at the table. For a true horror game, I think I would do that. I would be all about that. I would be entirely fine with it. Awesome. I mean, normally I normally I pick up my phone just to like have something to fiddle with. So like I could bring a fidget cube, or if you wouldn't mind me like just tossing around like a D6 or something, I think I'd be fine. Awesome. All right, I got two games. For the Castles and Crusades line, or two books, I got, let's see, The Darkenfold. So, an adventure that takes place in the, the default campaign setting of Castles and Crusades, which is aired. But then I also got this book, Brian, which, check this out. Castles and Crusades, Towers of Adventure. I didn't know this existed. Mm -hmm. I have a ton of Castles and Crusades books. This one seems to be 
just a bunch of maps of towers that are worksheets oh. where you can fill out what's in the rooms. Just page after page of a picture of the tower and then uh, maps of the floors. Is the license such that you could copy this or... Oh, I ha- no, no. I highly doubt that. Okay, so it's just interesting that this is completely untouched. Uh, there's nothing written in it. It, it. it looks basically brand new. Oh, and I wouldn't touch it. I would. I would photocopy it. Oh, and they're named things. The Evil Cleric Tower, the Dwarf Tower, the Vampire Tower. I said earlier that I wanted to run a, a really condensed game of uh, of Ravenloft for you guys. Let's see. Tower 11. Uh, on the wrong page here. What's what the Vampire Tower looks like. Vampire Tower, page 11. There's the Vampire Tower. Wow. Eh, it doesn't say really vampire to me. It's it's in a crater. I would use that for like a, sh- a ships falling to to the ground and and crazy dangerous um, aliens have are coming out of it. So random aside. So one thing again, being a used bookstore, often what you have is you'll have uh, sometimes these things make it through multiple used bookstores, mm-hmm. and uh, they'll have the original sticker. This has the original sticker. It looks like from the retailer. And I often wonder, like, what kind of retailer would sell something like this? This is a, a store called Kit Kringle. I have never heard of that. I've never heard of them either. That's just, it seems odd for a place where you'd buy a Castles and Crusades book. And it's been repriced at Edward McKay's. It was six ninety five, and they reduced it to $6, so I got it for 6 bucks. Sweet. I am really excited about this book. This is a bunch of just, like, tower maps that are absolutely ready to go. All right, I got some fourth edition stuff. I got Prince of Undeath, which is the adventure where you kill Orcus. I've always wanted that. And I got Revenge of the Giants, which is a giant-focused campaign. I've literally never had you guys fight a giant, ever, in any system or campaign. Uh, yeah, you're right. So there's a whole campaign about giants, or, or an adventure, I should say, but quite a long adventure, 12th to 17th level in fourth edition. And then last, I got the GURPS... I didn't say last but not least, because it it it's the one I least care about, but I am interested in it. The GURPS 4th Edition Basic Set Characters book, where you actually create characters for GURPS. We're never going to play GURPS. We will literally never, ever play it, but I've always been curious about it, so I had to pick it up to take a look at, at GURPS 4th Edition. All right, that's what we got. Quite an, a haul. The ones I'm most looking forward to sinking my teeth into and reading are The Legends and Lairs, The Wildscape, and The Darkness and Dread. After that, I'm going to hit the 4th edition books, and the book that I think I'm most likely to use is this Book of Towers, this Towers of Adventure for Castles and Crusades with just a ton of tower maps right out of the box. That is awesome. 15 towers, 15 pictures of towers, and then maps of towers, floor by floor, right out of the box. I'm going to use the heck out of that. Sweet. And... and Obviously, just because it's a Castles and Crusades book doesn't mean you couldn't utilize it for something else. And even if we're not going to play the GURPS game, I'm certain you could draw inspiration for another game or another system from something in there, potentially. Yeah. And I actually came across another book that I forgot to talk about, The Way of the Naga for L5R First Edition. So the Naga are... First Edition? So L5R is up to what, 5th edition at this point? I'm um, yes, yes. So L5R 5E. So what when was that book published? Uh, let's look. 1999. Really? I figured it would have been farther back to that, but I mean that's 20 years. 
I mean, I could be wrong. No, no, it's first edition because the game system designed by David Williams and John Wick. So, John Wick, that's one E. Cool. And I have a number of these clan books from first edition. And the Naga are this race of snake people that have been asleep for centuries. And sort of myths have grown up around them. And then um, in the 1100s, they, they wake up. And then this is all about them and their clan in Rokugan. I love the alien aspects of Rokugan. Yeah. The Shadowlands, the Naga, the, the monsters. That's what I'm into. Anyway, great haul. I, <sighs> the only sad thing is, Brian, I don't have time to actually read anymore. Uh-huh. Between work and and seven-year-old child and keeping a marriage going, it's pretty tough to actually have time to sit down and read. Did you get anything game-related? Video game. Which game? Oh, just some random like Atari 2600 games. Oh, you got actual games? Yeah. I didn't even notice what was in your card. I was, I was so focused. Poor Brian. We got to the uh, we got to the RPG aisle, and all of a sudden, I was like zeroed in. That was great. Like that's why that's why I wanted to go. It was awesome. Uh, but yeah, I not a lot that I had a lot of knowledge of. So, and I tend to when I go to the store, I tend to look at video games, uh, comic books, and uh, other random electronics. I was very excited to get a copy of the soundtracks of Mash and Patton on uh, vinyl. So that was unexpected. That's awesome. Alright, well, let's go get a bite to eat. So, while we drive to lunch, Brian, you mentioned earlier that you were looking for considering a player's handbook for 4th edition because you'd never gotten one. Yeah, I didn't really see that. So, good news. I actually have uh, Heroes of Fallen Lands and Heroes of Forgotten Kingdoms, which are the two Essentials player's handbooks that let you do almost every race and class in 4E mm-hmm. with the Essentials way, which is... In my opinion, better, but yeah. people certainly argue back and forth or argue the point. Was this from the Red Book? Uh, the Red Box. Red Box. Everything after the Red Box was, was basically Essentials or Essentials Compatible. Red Book was a magazine for women. It was. It was. Um, we won't comment on that any further. But uh, basically, it's the the most up-to-date player's handbooks for 4th edition that you can get that actually have uh, quite, a few, quite a few options you can build almost anything you want. So, I'll give you those. You don't have to give me those. It's entirely, I, I appreciate it, but I, I was more interested in just like, how do I say it? It's not so much the destination as it is the journey. Mm. It's kind of like the other thing I was looking for, uh, the, the Beowulf uh, edition by Tolkien. Like, I have it on Kindle. But I just, like, in the wild, want to find it. We didn't mention this. The big thing that I was looking for that I didn't get, that I couldn't find, was it's a book called The Willow Sourcebook by a guy named yes. Alan Barney. It came out concurrently with the movie, so late 80s. It actually gave RPG-style stats, even though it wasn't officially D&D. It gave D&D-style stats for a lot of the characters and a lot of backgrounds and a lot of interesting, interesting information about Nakmar and about the Knights of Galadun and all that stuff um, that's sort of mentioned in the book. Oh, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it. I've started the thought. Between you and me, Brian, one of my RPG fantasies is to run a campaign in the world of Willow with things like the Knights of Galadun and Nakmar and the Evil Queen 
and have all this stuff in the background and see how long it takes for the players to be like, wait a minute, is this Willow? I'll be honest, I would not. I wouldn't realize it until he hit me over the head with it. Yeah, Galadorn, you wouldn't get. I think I would have to literally talk about the Dakinis and... I think you'd literally have to talk about your friend Willow. <laughs> Probably. So I can get away with the humans being Dakinis and you wouldn't get it? No. Uh, and, this, and, and the swordsman, who looked a lot like Val Kilmer, he appeared. Mad Mardigan. No, you'd have to say, he looks a lot like Val Kilmer. So if I said Mad Mardigan, you still wouldn't get it? No. Wow. I need to pick it up on Blu-ray, I guess. What about the evil queen Bav Morda? No. <laughs> I, I watched it once when I was like seven. The Death Dogs. No, I played I played the video game on the Nintendo Entertainment System like for half an hour, an oh, hour. Oh, that game it. was awful. I liked it. I thought it was pretty good. Fair enough. Well, one of my RPG fantasies is, is to run as far into a campaign as I can before revealing to you or you figuring out that it's Willow. Like the time that I ran Frozen. I wasn't there for that game. Oh, that would have And been, I wouldn't have caught it anyway. It was such a great game. Mike caught it immediately and he, he let me have the surprise on everyone else. It was so perfect. Yeah, I totally missed that one. What a great game that was. Alright, so here we are. We've we've bought these, you know, used books, used games, etc. I've bought a lot of used RPG books existential thought that we've talked about before on the show. So it's not a new thought, not even new to us. Ultimately, these books, when I die, someone's going to have to figure out what to do with them. And I don't think future generations are going to care about third-party D20 <laughs> OGL 3.5 game books nearly as much as I do. As I was buying the copy of Patton's soundtrack on vinyl, I had the thought that one of my daughters was going to have to throw it away after I die. I literally thought it as I was picking it up off the shelf. So why do we still buy this stuff? Like, I just had a tremendous amount of fun. I'm going to go home and read it. So, in that sense, it wasn't wasted money. Uh, what do we do? What do I do to do better? Like, not to put a lot of weight on this, but as a society, like, should I be buying PDFs only? But then what would I read the PDF on? Isn't that just more consumer electronics? And I think a big problem with the global economy is we are very comfortable with folks in countries that are not the U.S. being paid well below a livable wage, well below minimum wage, to snap together cheap electronics that we can use and throw away. So are PDFs really that much better when I have to read them on an iPad that was assembled by a worker in China under terrible working conditions? You know, if if you're... Are we saying buy a PDF or acquire a PDF? Buy a PDF. Because I, I, I want to support the designer. I want to support the author, right? Now, certainly there are ways to acquire PDFs, but let's not get into those. Yeah, I mean, in doing that, yes, you are you are supporting. It's a, it's a almost... As long as they are publishing it themselves, it is a direct one-to-one. You are paying the person that produced it, bound it digitally, or whatever. Yeah. And, and a minimum impact to the environment. Because yeah, it's just energy. To presuppose that I bought an entire tablet because of this RPG purchase is ridiculous. So, I guess what you're saying is that tablets exist now and will exist for the foreseeable future. So why waste the paper too? Yeah, basically. Or I mean, it's not even the it's not even the waste. It's all these extra costs that go into things 
like the binding, like the paper, the shipping. I was listening to a podcast, one of my favorite podcasts, which is Retronauts. They're talking to um, uh, the people at, uh, gosh, Short Limited Run Games, which I think is the name of the company. And I believe they're also out of North Carolina, out of Apex. And they were talking about uh, the cost of boxes for a game. And at the volume they were producing it in, the box for the game was an added cost of twelve dollars. Whoa! Yeah, so it's not just it's not just you know uh, the waste as far as what goes into the environment. I mean, literally that box for me, it would just go in the trash. Some people like the touchy feely stuff. I don't. So I do like to have a physical cartridge or something to show for it usually, or a book often. But uh, when it comes to just the cost going into something, it bugs me a little bit that the box was $12 of the purchase. And that's the same thing in a way with uh, RPG books. If you're fine reading on a screen, why not? Okay. Well, fair enough. Let's talk about... Let's give those folks that listen to RPGLL a bit of a window into your other hobby. Would you mind sharing what you shared with me a second ago about... Uh, TFCon? Yeah, I went to a Transformers convention recently, and uh, I made... I mean, when I say a substantial purchase, for my toy collecting habits, it's a substantial purchase. Uh, I basically bought one toy that I've wanted for 25 years, uh, and a couple other toys uh, basically came along for the ride. And it was, you know, it was a four-figure purchase, I'm not going to lie. Uh, and, uh, basically something I told my wife a while back that I was going to pre-spend some bonus money and I was going to start, um, buying some higher end items because there are things I want that I've wanted for years that are not cheap. I, you know, as far as my collecting habits go. Let's explore this a little bit. So let's get into Transformers a little bit because Brian, your other hobby is Transformers. You're really into Transformers. Yes. Your, your main podcast, your, your, your very main podcast, Radio Free Cybertron, is arguably the world's oldest, really well arguably, the world's oldest internet podcast, period, and certainly the oldest Transformers podcast. Oh, yes, definitely, certainly the oldest Transformers podcast. I know of one that's still active that I think is arguably potentially older, and I think I know of one that's defunct that might have been around before. Podcast or Transformers podcast? Podcast. No, definitely. We're absolutely the first Transformers podcast. Uh, like, we just celebrated our 20th anniversary uh, last month. Uh, about, actually, well, when you're listening to this, back in October of 2019. Yep. So, uh, yeah. So, like, I've been collecting Transformers seriously for over 20 years. There are things that I want that uh, are wanted that, at, when I was younger, were what I consider prohibitively expensive. You know, so, they might, might have been a couple hundred dollars then. You know, 25 years later, they're a little bit more now. I want to unpack several things that you just said. First of all, what does it mean to you to, quote, collect Transformers seriously? Uh, well, I mean, seriously, there's there are different levels, of course. So, like, for me, can the average person on the street would say I'm a very serious collector. And then, like, people that I know that I would consider, you know, a very serious collector would consider me an amateur. So, um... My, well, I've seen your collection. You are, in my opinion, a very serious collector. But, like, what what in your mind makes you... What are you trying to achieve with your collection? How about that? I My collection 
satisfies my compulsory buying habits, basically. So, uh, like, there's certain things I'd I'd like, certain toys I'd like to have. I'd like to have a complete run of the original Transformers line from the 1980s. All the American toys. So you're looking at about 700 items there. Now, when you said the original Transformers line, you really mean the American version of the Japanese lines that were originally Diaclone and... Microman. Microman. And there are a couple other various Bandai-related brands. That so, were. so the one, people may not know this, the one G1 Transformers toy line was where Hasbro went and got pieces of various toy lines in Japan. Yeah, so basically Hasbro acquired uh, molds, well, acquired, licensed the molds of uh, certain toys from Takara and Bandai and potentially somebody else. And then they turned around uh, after the line became successful and repackaged in America and effectively resold it to Japan, resold it to Takara. And they were reselling the same product that was already on the shelf from a couple of years before, but this time uh, packaged in a, uh, in a story that was really developed by Marvel Comics and Marvel's TV series, yeah, uh, Sunbow. So, so, well, uh, that, that Bob Budiansky. Uh, Larry Hama was uh, G.I. Joe. So let's talk for a second about that without going too deep into Transformers history which we've already done so cats out the bag the point is there's nothing about the G1 collection that is inherently coherent there's nothing about the G1 collection that represents a well thought out well curated complete collection of something it's very much a conglomeration of, of disparate pieces that Hasbro happened to have the rights to and that a comic book writer happened to throw some backstory on top of. So that's they, for the first couple of years. Yeah, sure. But and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making fun of your hobby. I'm no, not, no, no, I'm, no. I'm really not. No, it, it, I'm exploring. Yes. Let me finish. So the, the, to finish the question out, with it being inherently disparate and conglomerated, what makes you want to assemble a so-called complete collection of G1, knowing the history makes that somewhat irrelevant? I mean. Yes, for the first couple of years, it's disparate and conglomerated from these other lines. But even as a whole, because after, say, 1986, uh, Transformers became a much more focused property. But you, there's even seasons in respect to that. Like, so, 1986 uh, was mostly movie toys, and there were some combiner toys. Uh, but then every couple of, every year or so, there was kind of like a new play pattern that was introduced. And it wasn't wasn't necessarily consistent from year to year. Uh, it was all branded Transformers, but uh, it was much more focused, but it was also focused only for that year. Uh, but, like, what? Like, I... It's literally... It's an addiction. It's literally an itch in my brain that tells me that I need it. Does this addiction stem from childhood? Like, you started collecting with G1, therefore you want to have a complete set of G1? To some extent. Uh, like, I... As you know, it's not just Transformers that I have tons of. It's a lot of things. Like, I guess if I were going to be purchasing something that was, like, my first love, it would really be Masters of the Universe. But I really don't care about Masters of the Universe so much. There's things I like about it. I like the pack-in comics. I think those are neat. Uh, I think the business history is, is kind of neat. But I think with Transformers, it really captured uh, just... There, there's more to unpack from a... Uh, storyline perspective, Marvel, uh, 
really um, there's an extra layer of um, narrative around Transformers that Masters of the Universe didn't have so much of uh, and the toys were also much more involved and much more uh, well thought out Okay, so let, let's get past the Transformers history and by the way if you're interested in more Transformers history if you have Netflix there's a fantastic episode of the toys that made us about Transformers a friend of mine worked on it and uh, the thing I can say about that unlike most anything else uh, I watched it and there's nothing about it that I can say no that's not right awesome. not, a, not a thing all right, so, so moving past Transformers history, the three, the, the, the four-figure purchase, four figures meaning four-digit purchase that you made yeah. of three figures of three toys, um, the four-figure purchase of three figures, um, which three figures was it? Uh, so Overlord, which was a toy that was exclusive to Europe and Japan that came out in 1989. So definitely G1. Yeah, definitely G1. Um, he's a large Transformer. Uh, 88, I think, actually. Uh, so, large Transformer meaning, is he one of those cities? Is he one, Is he like, is he a combiner? Like, what is Overlord? He's actually larger than the first couple of cities that came out. He's uh, comparable. He's probably, as far as G1 goes, just, uh, I don't have a, I don't have like a, a sheet in front of me to, to compare it to. But he's probably the second tallest Transformer that came out in the 80s. And he was Autobot Decepticon? Decepticon. Decepticon. Yeah. Okay, so Overlord's a bad guy, and you've always wanted an Overlord. Why? I Actually, I had it years ago and, re- and sold it like an idiot. So, oh. So I, I'm on this kick right now where I'm rebuying things that I parted with years ago like an idiot. Got it. So um, I sold that one years ago for $400. And I paid a little more than that to buy this one back. Okay. So what's what's the next one? Uh, the other was Metro Titan, which was a, a repaint of one of the city Transformers named Metroplex. Metroplex was an Autobot, came out in 86. Uh, Metro Titan is a Decepticon, came out as part of the Transformers Zone series in Japan in like the early 90s. Okay. So because it was... Oh, that's interesting. Because it came out in Japan, branded Transformers... Is it part of, like, a, a G-line that you consider an American G-line, or is it just a wholly separate thing from the G1, G2 lines? Uh, so this is its own conversation. Uh, True. Yeah, so uh, I, I consider it something separate, but it draws, it, its history draws from what we had here in the United States, I'll say that. But you wanted to own it. Because it's, it's weird looking, yes. Were you looking for it, or you saw it and you were like, ooh? So I put out a Twitter poll of what I should buy. At TFCon. Uh-huh. And it did not make the list, only because I didn't expect to see it. Oh, because so. it Because it's, it's it's quite rare. Got it. Okay, so it was like a... Oh, my God. I never, I never thought I would see that. I mean, nab it. And it was the most... Of the, of the three toys I bought, it was the most expensive. So sort of like if I saw... If I went to a used bookstore, and I saw an OD&D white box, and I was like, oh, my God, and I just nailed it. Yes. Okay. What's the third toy? Uh, Star Saber, who is the leader of the Autobots from the Transformer series, uh, Victory. Is Star Saber the one that was actually from Lacrosse? Uh, no, you're thinking of Jetfire. I oh. bought one of those, too. <laughs> I, that's one that I resold years ago. A friend of mine, uh, he, I always try to buy Wait, something from Star Saber or Jetfire? Uh, Jetfire is one I bought 
also. He's the Macross figure. Yep. A Star Saber is the figure that I bought as part of the other part of the other purchase. Okay. But that when I say that actually costs less than the Jetfire, but those three figures I actually bought from the same vendor. Okay. So, sorry, what is it? Again? Star Saber. Star Saber, yeah. Star Saber. Is that another one that you've always wanted, or are you? Yeah, it? yeah. Back when I was uh, young and poor, I had a really cheap knockoff off the toy back in the late '90s, and I always wanted it. And uh, I finally, finally picked it up, and I was just surprised by how relatively inexpensive it was. It was about half of what I expected to pay. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was, um, it was there. I was already dropping way more money than I've ever spent before on toys, so I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll add it. Got it. Okay, so you acquired these things. What are you gonna do with them? They, they sit on the shelf. Do you transform them? No. Will you ever transform them? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I have. So, I, like, like, where do you draw? Like, let's say, which one? Which one of those three that we just discussed is the most fragile? Um, I would say the most fragile of the three is probably the Star Saber, only because, the, ironically, the joints and everything are so tight; they feel so new that I worry that the joints are potentially stronger than the plastic. That, uh... They can take. That, yeah. So, okay. If it was in robot mode, but you wanted to display it... In, in like, jet mode, mode, yeah, yeah. Or vice versa, would you transform it? I already have, yeah. Okay. Since it just sits on a shelf, let me potentially double your hobby. Why don't you collect two of every Transformer? That way you can display each one in robot mode and vehicle mode. This is also something I've thought of. <laughs> You know, there's... there. And I ask that question, what I'm really asking is, where do you draw the line? I don't have a line. So, there are several toys I have multiples of. Uh, like, Generation 1 Soundwave. I have probably six or seven of those. Some of them are displayed in cassette, you know, take, uh, in cassette player mode. Some are displayed in robot mode. There are certain Transformers that are iconic in both modes. Optimus Prime as a truck and a robot. Soundwave as a cassette player and a, and a robot. Uh, those I do have multiples of, and they get displayed both ways. Okay. All right. And I guess I'm, I'm, I'm really pressing you on this to delve into my own psychology because I don't know where I draw the line either. Like, if I could have walked away with every book on that bookshelf today, every single one, and reasonably stored it and had any confidence on every, I probably would have. Like, I, I get just, it. I feel driven where I have to really choose and curate what I'm buying. There were there were other books in the same series for D20 third edition books. There was other books in the same series there, but I picked them up and looked at them and they were mostly, they were 99% player focused and I was like, no, I'll put it back. But so much of me wants to have all of everything. Mm -hmm. That's me. And it's unhealthy. The way that... Um and of course, you have to make the choice. You have to decide to do this. But in speaking with people before about this, it's almost like uh, a twelve-step program. Uh, it's like decide what you what you want to collect and do that well. Uh, so, an example that I've tried to do: um, there are so in 1985 in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, McDonald's had a, a Transformers Happy Meal. It was in the test market in St. Louis, Missouri. That was the only market it was in. Uh, those Happy Meal toys, there are 24 of them, 
there are four different toys with six different uh, basically pink uh, colors for each one. Sure. Based on the plastic and molded. I my goal is in the next five years is to have all twenty five of them or twenty four of them. Uh, in the last year, I've acquired five of them. Uh, years ago, I thought that they were so rare that I could never own one. Now I have five, so I have nine. I have nineteen left, and maybe possibly when I hit that, I'll be happy. I, someone recently on a Facebook group had the entire set for sale, and strangely, I didn't buy it, even though it was within my price range. Um, it was about what I paid for those three toys together. But the thing is, if I have it all at once, like what have I actually accomplished other than spend money? Um, and also, frankly, the set in total is worth less than the individual parts. Unlike potential other other hobbies or other collections, when you have the entire set, the the uh, the possible um, customer base for that is much lower because you have people who want to complete a set. Rarely, if ever, do you have somebody who just wants to buy the set in general. A friend of mine has a collection that he assembled of these rare Japanese, uh, what were called uh, what were called decoys in the United States. Uh, and he has them all. And once he completed his collection, he is one of probably five people in the whole world who really wanted that collection. So if he ever wanted to resell it, he would have to sell it piecemeal because, frankly, nobody's going to pay the to- in total what the individual pieces are worth. Makes sense. And, and the same is true of my collection, right? No one's ever going to want all of my books. Yeah. Because my books are for different games and all. And even then, most people who want Pathfinder books already have the core book. Yeah. Or already have the core you know, three or four books. Basically, it's tough to sell an RPG collection other than piecemeal. Mm-hmm. The best thing that to do is just dump it on a used bookstore and walk away. Yeah, uh, funny enough, uh, I, there's a what, Pawn Stars, one of those shows, uh, recently, a couple years ago. Somebody tried to sell a Transformers collection, and I don't know. Was, I think I can't remember the exact number, but it was an order of magnitude uh, difference between what the resale value was piecemeal and what the offer was. I, If I remember right, it was about a $30,000 collection that they were offering like $2,500 for, or it might have been a $100,000 collection they were offering $20K for, but either, something like that. Either way, it was like it, it was effect, almost an order of magnitude difference between uh, what the uh, offer was and what could be, you know, obtained selling them individually. So, with Transformers in particular, you have two forces at play, right? One force at play is that plastic does, in fact, age. Mm-hmm. It oxidizes, it becomes brittle, it breaks. So, every year, I assume, more Transformers find their way in landfills versus toy stores, or, or even used toy stores. That's So, force number one. Transformers that are G1 are getting rarer. Force- uh, I, that, that makes perfect logical sense. It absolutely does. But what we also have are people... Two and, things. Let's say the second force is people who want them are dying. Yes. Or people who have them are 
dying. Yes, but also, also people, stuff that is out there and exists either in uh, like an unknown uh, warehouse or just a just a store of toys that exist. Old toys are being found all the time that exist, and it's not super uncommon for cases of toys to be found that are, you know, in pristine, beautiful boxes, or just general toys that are, you know, somebody's finding in their attic. So, I would say that that's a, that's, I'm not going to say it's a force, but it, it's just something that happens. And you have people also, not only are they dying, some people are just deciding that they are divesting themselves of their collection. True. So, what happens when everyone who grew up watching Transformers is gone? Is the market gone, or is there something about them that makes them collectible even after our generation is gone? Well, Transformers is a Transformers isn't Mickey Mouse exactly, so we don't have multi, we don't have many many generations of people that grew up on it, but we do have you know there are kids today that collect Transformers. There are there are people half my age who are serious Transformers collectors. Uh, and they buy up this stuff. Uh, at TFCon, I was talking to somebody I know. He's like 22. And he bought some of the rare Japanese stuff from before he was born. Because he likes Transformers. Uh, and it's it's like with me. I've been buying up uh, vintage baseball cards from 30 or 40 years before I was born. Uh, I, I like them because I like baseball cards. Baseball cards uh, is a greater has a greater span than the lifespan of one person that buys them. So as long as there's somebody out there who has an interest, I mean, gosh, it was like that episode of Star Trek, The Next Generation, when the uh, uh, collector uh, acquired data, restole data. Uh, if I remember right, he had a Roger Maris baseball card uh, in, in his collection, and that's, you know, that was the 24th century. I'm certain in the 24th century there will be people that own baseball cards or Transformers and I can and you know what prize them and can tell you who and what they are I don't know where we go from here Brian so I, I think neither of us can explain why we collect oh or maybe I'd ask you that is it left living from childhood is this itch in your brain I think I asked you that and you said yeah. it's an itch in your brain but I, I, I want to dig on that more like there's no childhood reason behind my RPG collection I didn't play D and D until I was thirty, or, or nearly thirty. So there's no childhood nostalgia. I discovered it, much to my wife's chagrin. I discovered the RPG hobby after we were married, or after we started dating, at the very least. Um, there's nothing childhood in my collection. But what about yours? Well, real quick, let me go back to that. Like thinking about it, and this is this is armchair psychology, but. When you got married and you had your daughter, you had way less free time to hang out with friends and do things like that. And is this a proxy for you investing in your friendships and your friends and your relationships? By spending money on it, it's, in a way, not only are you investing in something that will potentially be shared with amongst your friends, but also it's, it's a way to, I don't know, in, ensure that there's some sort of Social lubrication isn't the right way of putting it, but uh, it's something that we all share together, and, and it's something that 
information that you can share, knowledge you can share, uh, value that you can bring that the rest of us can. I don't know if that makes sense. All right. Fair enough. Get ready to be weirded out. Okay. Deep breath. Ready? Yes. When I read these books, I fantasize about you guys. I fantasize about running these adventures and these monsters and these adventure hooks. This is awesome. I, I fantasize about how you guys would react to this twist or this turn or this plot or this monster. Yeah, it's a big deal to me. I, I, I think about playing too. In a lot of ways, yes, I am investing in our friendship even when I can't actually be with you guys or the, the notion of friendship in general because it's a social hobby and I buy these things largely for my own enjoyment, but a lot of my enjoyment stems from leveraging these things to entertain you guys. So, yeah, I'm not saying when I say loss and absence, it's not that you don't have friends. Wait, uh, so, so no reaction to me saying I fantasize about you. I fantasize about you guys too all the time. Okay. Like I, I, it's, I, what, I, I think the term fantasize is a very loaded term. Yes, I, yes. Un, I understand what you mean. People fetishize that word. Yes, I understand what you mean. But like, what, when I say lost naps, it's like, but we're not always hanging out. We're not playing together that often. I think a lot of this probably comes down to a longing or a need or desire. For me, I had, I was poor as dirt when I was a kid, and I had a pretty crummy childhood. So there's probably something to me really loving Transformers when I was a kid. And now being an adult who can afford these things, buying them, maybe I'm trying to buy my childhood back. And you're just trying to buy time with your friends. Maybe so. That's as good a stopping point as any, Brian. I, I, think, I think you may have nailed it. Nailed it. Damn. Wait till I tell Susan. <laughs> they <laughs> fantasize about me and Mike and Chris. And I gotta figure out how to gloss over that. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Brian. People call them postmortems, evaluations, appraisals, reviews, retrospectives. We call them lessons learned, and we're sharing ours with you.